What's up, Hardcore Humans? This is Dr. Mike with a very special episode of the Hardcore Humanism podcast. We are talking with the king of rock. There is none higher. I'm, of course, talking about the mighty DMC, Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC. Now, when I was growing up, hip-hop was just developing into an absolute cultural phenomenon. And none were more important or influential than Run DMC, with its cutting-edge blend of hip-hop and rock, including hits such as Sucker MCs, Rockbox, King of Rock, Walk This Way, It's Tricky, Raising Hell, and Down With The King. And DMC was this larger-than-life figure, half hip-hop artist and half superhero. I've now had the opportunity to interview Daryl a few times, but I still remember the first time we met. He came into my Manhattan office, and we talked for a couple of hours, and I felt like I was sitting in the presence of Superman. He was someone who gave me so many of my favorite cultural moments, so many special songs, so I was just kind of numb the whole time. But as I talked with him, and he shared with me how he grew up as a comic book kid and the importance of creativity to him, and even talked about his struggles with mental health, he became something more important to me than a hero. He became a real person that I was getting to know. And after we talked, I told him the truth. I really like DMC, but I absolutely love Daryl. As an artist, he's mythical, but a bit untouchable. But as a human being, he's super down-to-earth and inspiring. And that's what I hope everyone gets from the conversation. Some of that connection to this great man who has done amazing things, but to whom we can relate on a human level and apply some of what he has accomplished to our own lives. And today, we're going to take a deep dive into his creativity and the intersection of two cultures that were so vital to his personal and creative development, comic book and hip-hop culture. And we're going to try and distill some of those lessons from both cultures that includes not only celebrating diversity and equality among people, but also that all of us have something special to offer in the world if we give ourselves a chance to embrace our imagination. So let's listen to what Daryl has to say. We are here with the king of rock, the mighty Daryl McDaniels, DMC. It has been my pleasure to talk with him on several occasions in the past and absolutely thrilled to be talking with him again. We're going to be talking about comic book culture. We're going to be talking about hip-hop culture. And we're going to be talking about how both of those have something to say for people as they always have, but particularly what they have to say for people right now. So Daryl, let's start with a welcome and how you've been doing in the pandemic. I'm doing actually really, really good. I'm enjoying the quarantine. The reason why I say that is because um, the first three days was crazy. You have all this anxiety. And you're like, oh, my God, everything is over with. Am I going to die? What's going to happen next year? This and that. Like you, it felt like your whole existence was in jeopardy because it was the unknown. And... You start thinking, you start bugging out like it's a movie, like, oh, my pandemic. <laughs> this, this is over with. You know, everybody's going to get sick, then they don't have no cure for it. But by the third day, a calm came over me because I started to feel like when I was 12 years old and I was in my room, you know, I, I was one of those kids that had to be in a house when the streetlights came on. My mother was like, you have your butt in this house when that streetlight come on. And being in the house, you got to figure out what to do. You got to figure out how to live. You know what I'm saying? So all I have was, you know, this goes right with the subject of hip hop and, and comic books. You, all you have is your imagination. 
And I realized that your imagination is the safest place to go when everything out here is going crazy. So I just settled down and I was like, yo, I used to do this. You know what I'm saying? I remember Ellen once saying human, the human beings would be much better if they would just go outside and play tag every now and then and, and do stuff that you used to do as a kid because you was free and it opened your spirit. So I've been in, you know, the house in my little room. It reminded me of my bedroom again. And I've just been writing songs. I wrote like 50 songs. Now, not to make records and record, just to write them. You know what I'm saying? Fourth day into the pandemic, I wrote three songs and I was just writing and writing. And up to this time, I looked last week, I looked down, I had all these new songs. And it was like looking in my little rhyme book that I had when I was 15 years old. The purpose wasn't to make records and sell records and be famous. It was just to feel alive and feel good. So I did that. And then on the other subject, being quarantined, it gave me a lot of time to think of new stories for my comic book. We're up to issue three right now. I got 3.5 getting ready to come and then DMC issue number four. So during this quarantine, I was able to really sit back, no pressure, and create new exciting stories and invent all of these new characters and, and new subject matter. So not the pandemic, the quarantine actually did me good. <laughs> so let's take people back because not everyone, but most people should be familiar with you. Grammy, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right. artist. Tell people about the history with comic books and comic book culture because that may be something right. that they're not as familiar with. Before hip-hop, before hip-hop, before the music, kids growing up in New York City and probably everywhere else, but in New York City, late 60s, early 70s, the conditions in our communities, the social conditions, the educational system, the Bronx was burning, 42nd Street wasn't Disney, <laughs> the way people see it now, it was porn, drugs, heroin, Gangs, pimps, pushers, prostitutes, crime. It was just death, darkness, and destruction and despair in New York City. So this is before the invention of hip-hop. Once again, all these little boys and girls, they just had their imaginations. But at that time, in the late 60s and 70s, you always had the local drugstore or the candy store. They don't have candies. Everything is now Whole Foods and Walmart and CVS and all of that. But they used to have these little corner candy stores like the corner bodegas that still exist in certain parts of the Bronx and Manhattan and Brooklyn. And every week you would save that nickel and you would go to the corner candy store, the corner pharmacy drugstore, and there was a rat that spun. And it was comic books all in that rack, DC and Marvel. And you would save your hard-earned nickel, <laughs> which probably was your allowance or whatever. And you would just go read these comic books. The comic books was our release. And the comic books showed us things that really didn't exist in our world yet. You know, superpowered beings overcoming the hardships and struggles of life. So as young people in the late 60s, the early 70s, the young persons go to fantasy, make-believe, perfect world was these comic books. But in addition to that, 
the things that made the comic book so appealing was everybody from every generation are products of pop culture. So in addition to having the comic books, what did the kids have? What did kids and older adults and everybody have? You had television. Now remember, I sit before you. I am the Flintstones. I am I Dream a Genie. I am the Brady Bunch. I am Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny. I am the Munsters. I am the Adams Family. I am Star Trek. So we are products of everything that we see on TV. I would come home from elementary school, get home about 2.30, do your homework, you eat your dinner, and you turn on the TV and you're watching the Brady Bunch. And those kids and those families were part of who we are. The difference between television coming from a pop culture standpoint and the comic books, the comic books, you held them in your hands. The comic books was yours, whether it was Batman, Superman, all the Marvel superheroes. But with the comic books, not only it was a 3D experience, you saw it, you held it, and you read it. It was very emotional. But on some level, there was something significant about Stan Lee's comic books. Stan Lee, rest in peace, he's a genius. DC was cool, but remember, Metropolis and Gotham were fictional. Stan Lee was smart. He put the superheroes really in New York City. So when you read a Marvel comic book, it felt real. It wasn't make-believe. And me as a little kid, I got a geography lesson. I couldn't leave the block. But Stan Lee showed me this great city of New York that I lived in, but I wasn't allowed to go visit in person. But through my imagination, I walked down 42nd Street. I was in Hell's Kitchen. I was in the Lower East Side. Until I was, what, 15 years old, I never saw the Roosevelt Island tram in person. But when I was six, Spider-Man introduced it to me. So the comic books was our go-to release for another reality. So we were products of pop culture. So everything that we saw on TV, remember the um, black and white Godzilla movies? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Mothra, Gamera, and all of those. The King Kong, the black and white Hollywood monster flicks, Bella Lugosi, Boris Karloff. All of that is who we are. But the comic books took it a little further, like I said, because you held it in your hands. So... All the little kids, I don't care if you did live on Park Avenue or if you did live in Hell's Kitchen, when we was growing up, the comic books was our go-to reality release. For me, comic book, like I wasn't in a gang. You know, my parents, I had good parents. I was a good kid. But in my world in Hollis, Queens growing up, the only time I saw good people that were smart, I was a straight A student, uh, always on the honor roll. But that didn't exist in my neighborhood. There were kids here, but we was kind of like in the closet. <laughs> you know, so I used to come home from Catholic school and I used to take off my uniform and put on my play clothes so I could fit in. But I wasn't going to brag that I was a nerd and a geek and I'm smart and all of that. That didn't exist growing up in the streets of New York City. But it was in the comic books was the only place that I saw educated, smart people who were powerful. So all of us little kids, even the kids in the Bronx that had nothing, maybe some of those kids didn't go to school, but for some reason, they was attracted to Bruce Wayne. They was attracted to Peter Parker. They was attracted to Tony Starks. And remember, those characters were flawed too. 
Peter Parker was awkward. He didn't, he was trying to make it through. He didn't know what to do with girls, you know what I'm saying? But he was Spider-Man. Batman. Batman was an orphan. Batman, he had all of these mental issues that a lot of kids could relate to. So we saw ourselves in these characters. Tony Stark was an alcoholic. I remember I didn't become an alcoholic till I got older, but I remember reading Marvel comic books in the 70s and it shocked me. Tony Stark has a drinking problem. Like I didn't even know what that was. My father drinks. He has no problem. So all of those characters in those comic books kind of taught us about life that we wasn't getting taught in the real world at that time. And, you know, just thinking back, I know it's hard to think because you did have this, but if you could imagine what would have happened if you didn't have that outlet, like where would you put? Yeah. If we didn't have that outlet, truthfully speaking, I think we would have had more sad cases of people's existences. I think there would have been more drug abuse. There would have been more crime. There would have been worse instances of rapes and violence and gangbanging and all of that stuff. Because a lot of the kids that were in the gangs, because they had comic books and because we had kung fu movies, Bruce Lee movies, it kind of took us somewhere else to make us realize there's something else better, not just to do, there's something else better for me. So I think without that, without the comic books, without pop culture, you wouldn't have had artists. You wouldn't have had writers. You wouldn't have had designers. The pop culture, especially to the comic books, a lot of the graffiti artists were those little kids reading comic books that had the art in them, but nowhere to express it. So what did we do? We took it to the trains. <laughs> we were, our canvases was the trains. Our canvas was any wall that we would see. And the only thing wrong about graffiti was the fact we were writing on things we didn't own. But the beauty in graffiti was once you looked at that piece, it wasn't just graffiti, it was a work of art. So I think without those comic books to stimulate us mentally, to stimulate us visually, to stimulate us artistically and physically, I think we would have had a really, really, really sad. The generations of the 60s and 70s and early 80s would have been much worse. We'd have had crazy problems. It just got to the point where the drugs and the gangs were just about guys gangbanging and selling drugs. If we didn't have the arts, we wouldn't have the poets. <laughs> you know, because of reading the comic books, a kid that wasn't going to school wouldn't go to school like me. I went to school so I could understand what the hell Tony Starks is talking about. Because school taught me about the sun, the moon, the stars, science, and technology. So now I can read the comic book and understand what was going on. But there were a lot of kids that didn't go to school that was able to learn from reading the comic books. Like most of those kids, they knew their ABCs and they knew pronunciation. Maybe they would pronounce the word worms, but they would read um, Tony Stark's and Spider-Man. They would read the Fantastic Four. They would read Silver Surfer. They would read and understand Galactus and intergalactic. They understood what was going on. So a lot of those kids became educated because of that. And a lot of those kids wasn't going to school, but just the fact that they were reading was able to write songs, write some rhymes. You know what I'm saying? We knew... Peter Piper, Pit Peppers, we knew that. We knew Mary had a little lamb, but Fleece was white as stove. So the comic books 
kind of gave us education and a blueprint for existence and self-expression. And it's so interesting because this idea that an external model can be mm-hmm. so powerful, even one to an extent right. that's not technically real, although Stan right. Lee was real. But, right, right. I know what you mean. Right. Yeah, but that, that idea of if I see something about myself represented in culture, it gives me permission to think that I can actually do that. Right, right. exactly, exactly. Like, you know, even D.C., you're looking at Gotham. I really live in New York City, so this Gotham place I can relate to. It's dark. It's a lot of bad people in it. You know what I'm saying? The comic book, the make-believe world wasn't actually make-believe. I, tell, I, tell, I go to middle schools and I speak to the kids. Look at those words, make-believe. Kids used to tease me, D, you into that corny make-believe stuff. And I used to say, you're goddamn right. Look at the word make-believe. Make the world believe it. So even John Lennon said imagination. Imagine means image in. The image in. When I heard John Lennon, and I didn't hear that. I was 35 years old when I heard John Lennon say that. I always heard a certain imagine. So his song, Imagine, was about if you can see it and feel it. See, the comic books was emotional. You laughed. You cried. You got scared. Larry Hammer, one of the greatest comic book editors, artists, writers, whatever, he's the guy that turned G.I. Joe around and made G.I. Joe into this great iconic institution that it is now. He said the comic books wasn't really about just the dialogue. The great artists can show a face. You can read a whole comic book and receive emotional responses just from looking at the pictures. And that's what the comic books did for us. So if I'm reading Gotham was Harlem in the Bronx. Harlem is beautiful now. It's been a renaissance there. Harlem is not like the Harlem of the 60s and 70s. Harlem was death, destruction, darkness, despair, pimps, pushers, super fly, shaft, hell up in Harlem. Harlem was completely different back then. So if a little kid was reading about how dark and all the crazy characters that was in Gotham, you could just look out the door and say, I can relate to this. Metropolis was more like Manhattan. You know what I'm saying? Midtown Manhattan, the Daily News building was just the Daily Planet. Superman's world looked just like downtown Manhattan. You know what I'm saying? So Gotham was Harlem, Bed-Stuy in the Bronx, and then Metropolis was downtown Manhattan. So if a kid was reading that just from the images, see, we learn by ideas, concepts, and images are the real teachers. So that the best teachers give the kids ideas, concepts, and images. The best teachers say, no, you won't never see this algebra problem again, young man. And kids are right. Kids go, why do I got to learn this algebra question? I'm never going to use it. You're right. But it's the process of solving a problem. It's an emotional, physical, mental thing. So the comic books did that for us. And even if you look back, if you go online and you punch in 1970s train graffiti, all on the subway trains, you saw Snoopy, you saw Charlie Brown, you saw Mickey Mouse, you saw Fred Flintstone. So everything we was visualizing, everything we mentally, conceptually, and everything was images was in our expression. So if we didn't have that, we would have just had, I'm going to kill you because you're not worth anything. Pop culture, those comic books taught us taught us a sense of 
worth, but it had to come from an emotional standpoint, not just from a dictatorship. You need to learn this. Now, here you are, you're reading these comic books, you're getting so much from it. What is, because a lot of kids then Uh don't then make that pivot to start doing it themselves. And how did you make that pivot to start actually drawing and coming up with stories on your own? Instead of just well, taking in the ones that you already that's, had. That's funny. Boredom. <laughs> Out of boredom. You get the comic book. You read it a million times. And all the legendary comic book artists to this day, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Rob Liefeld, who created Deadpool, all the artists of, that created Batman and Superman, they told me, D, we started the same way. You read the comic book over and over and over and over and over. There's nowhere else you can go with it. So, remember, you could go to the five and dime store back in the day and get tracing paper. Remember, they had the drawing art pad. They had the black and white composition notebook. And right next to it in the same aisle was this thing called tracing paper. So I started taking the tracing paper and tracing the cover in the little places that I want, the little boxes, the little displays in the book that I wanted to replicate. Tracing is a repetitive form of demonstrating something. You know what I'm saying? You're imitating emotion. After doing that a million times, I realized I don't need the tracing paper no more. I could just look at the image and draw it. So after drawing the same thing over and over and over, you get bored. I love Spider-Man, Captain America, and the Hulk, but I'm going to make my own guy now. So most people, you made yourself a superhero. (laughs) And then you say, I'm going to make this one after my mother and father. So it it came out of necessity of eliminating the boredom. And that's when creativity gives comes to life. And let's talk about that idea of being your own superhero and how that transitioned into... DMC, and you, you've described it in the past as a character yeah. of sorts. Well, comic books prepared me for my artistic expression musically. But see, make believe is powerful. It also taught me something about life. Comic books taught me in this world, I don't care if you're a little kid, I don't care if you're a teenager, I don't care if you're a young person, I don't care if you're an elder person, I don't care, us human beings. Stan Lee taught me this by the way he presented these superheroes to me. Stan Lee taught me, define yourself. That's the first thing you do. No, if kids are teasing you and bullying you, or if you're a professional, I don't care what it is you do, and some reporter writes something bad about you, it doesn't have to have any effect on you. But I didn't know that. You know, I used to get teased because I wore glasses. Hey, four eyes. Hey, binoculars, it wasn't, see, you got glasses on now. When DMC came rhyming about his glasses being cool, all of a sudden glasses are cool now, right? People that don't even need glasses want to wear glasses because of me. And I remember I said that in, in school one time, and a little kid said, yeah, that's right, my grandfather told me that. DMC make gazelles and glasses cool. So Stanley comic books, especially Marvel comic books, taught me, Define yourself with an adjective that's powerful, productive, and positive, and you can be that. For instance, if I say to the world, the amazing, there goes Spider-Man. See, it's relating what's amazing to you. If I say the incredible, they'll go Hulk. 
if I say the mighty, the guy with the hammer, Thor. And if I say Tony Stark is the invincible Iron Man, you get it. So I saw that. I said, wow, that's how they do it. So let's fast forward. I'm in this make-believe world of comic books, realizing I can relate to Gotham and Metropolis. Stan Lee took that example to a whole nother level because he really said superheroes do live in New York City. So now it's even more real to me. But now this hip-hop thing comes over the bridge. So when I first heard hip-hop, it wasn't about making a record in show business to be famous and be a rock star. For me, it was, oh, shoot, you could tell stories over music about who you are? So that allowed mild-mannered Catholic school straight-A student Daryl McDaniels to transform himself into D's from Daryl, MC from McDaniels. But Stan Lee said, I can define myself any way that I want to, long as it's powerful, productive, and positive. So when I get on the microphone to express myself, I'm no longer mild-mannered Queens kid, Daryl McDaniels. I transform into the devastating Mike Controller. So <laughs> mentally, through your imagination, making believe or pretending that you are something through your expression, you are able to become that thing. So no matter what's going on around you, <laughs> that don't mean anything. What means something is the way you feel about yourself and how you feel about yourself and how you want to go about expressing yourself. So for me, it was a magic that I didn't even mean to happen. You know what I'm saying? And that's how it came about. It was just me imagining, oh, okay, they rhyme on the mic to beats and they tell stories about themselves. So I'm not in a game. You know, the early hip-hop guys was rhyming. It was about the message. It was life in the ghetto. Here's the reality. Don't believe that Studio 54 is what New York City is about. Because in the 70s, remember, people thought Studio 54 represented all of New York. Because the image that the world, and let's say this country, the image that this country and the world was receiving, every time you turn on the TV, it was only CBS, NBC, and ABC, Channel 9, Channel 11, and a couple of radio stations. So every time you turned on the radio, every time you turned the media on, what was dominant throughout the 70s? Studio 54. Hollywood was even coming from Hollywood to party at Studio Athletes, entertainers, CEOs, to who's who, the rich and the opulent, the most powerful people in the world, so we thought, was coming to New York to party at Studio 54. So everybody, when they turned to the media, they saw limousines and Bentleys and Rolls Royces and fur coats. And it was sex, champagne, and money. So everybody thought New York was really good. It took the young people who were the young boys and girls who were using their imaginations creatively that didn't have nowhere to release it. When hip hop came, it gave us that release. We put the art up on the trains and the walls. We took all the music of our parents, wherever the singer wasn't singing, and we told our songs, we made our stories. We were so powerful with our concepts of ourselves that, okay, I'm not going to tap dance. I'm not going to ballet. I'm going to spin on my head and dance. Now, people laughed at this. 
What do you want to do, young boy or girl? I want to dance and spin on my head. Oh, that'll be when pigs fly. What did we do? Pull out some cardboard? Uh, thought I couldn't do it. So we took all of that and we showed the world that this is our reality. But in the beginning, the power just to tell the truth. Yo, it ain't Studio 54 in New York. In New York City, it's broken glass everywhere. People pissing on the station. No, they just don't care. I can't take the smell. I can't take the noise. I got no money to move out. Yeah, I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. Now, what was powerful about that? It was young people who created this this presentation out of nothing, but it was young people saying it, but it was actually how the adults felt. But nobody at that time, but um, when Melly Mel said, it's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder, that's how my moms felt. The reason why hip hop was so powerful wasn't just us kids complaining. We created something to talk about what we saw because the media wasn't portraying those concepts, ideas, and images in everyday life for us. So people saw Studio 54 when the message came along. It was like, nah. And when the message dropped, the whole world was shocked about the truth of New York. Remember when it happened? So in the early days, every record was about the truth of New York. Me being in it, when I did my presentation, I realized I'm not in a gang, so I can't rhyme about being in a gang. I don't sell drugs. I'm a straight A student, but hip hop gave me the permission to come as I am. So when I came, I was just basically pretending to be the most powerful entity in the hip hop universe who's going to go for truth, justice, and the American way. And that's how I came on the set. I'm DMC in the place to be. I rapped about school. I think it was Wycliffe who said, yo, DMC is the most gangster MC ever. He's the only MC, only rapper that can rap about St. John's University, Christmas time, and wearing glasses and make it cool. <laughs> but the thing that worked for me was the emotion. The same way somebody would rhyme about selling drugs is the same way I rhyme about not selling drugs. So which one is going to be more powerful to the kid that don't really want to sell drugs, but he's only selling drugs because he thinks he has to do it? But here comes DMC saying, you ain't got to sell drugs to be a thug. You can be powerful if you read a book. The kid will say, I don't want to get shot at. So it was all about presentation. It was imagination's presentation of the realization of your situation. And I didn't want it to rhyme. But that's basically what it is. Everybody that was selling drugs, even the great drug dealers said, yo, I did what I had to do. I'm paying for it now. Most drug dealers are in jail a day. But all the drug dealers and all the um, gangbangers that when I go to speak in prisons and stuff like that, they say, yo, hip hop came. It didn't save me, but it saved my sister. It kept my sister from doing what, because we showed them the alternatives. It's not like a a politician comes and says, you shouldn't do that or we go to jail. You can't send, and and not even a young person, you can't send somebody to speak to somebody and not show them that this exists. You can't say, don't do drugs. I think it was Nancy Reagan. I saw she she wanted um, just say no was a great idea, but she didn't follow it up with presentation. Just say no, okay, okay. I'm going to do the drugs until you show me, oh, wow, I could be doing that instead of doing drugs. So that's the thing that when I, Chuck D, a public enemy, he said, when Randy MC came along, when we was making our records, 
we created a very good problem. We made everybody stop what they're doing with all the knucklehead nonsense and said, what is it that I could really be? Pretend. What I wanted to say was I was pretending to be a king. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. I was just make believe. I wrote that round. I was make believe in it. But by me saying it with authority and saying it over and over and over, when I walk the earth now, my people call, yo, what's up, king? And I laugh. I said, I was just playing. But was I? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because you were at the beginning. Right. But that did turn into a reality of sorts. Right. Exactly. DMC in the place. D's for doing it all of the time. M's for the rhymes that are on mine. C's for cool, cool ass can be. Rome would turn to me and point at me. He would go, and why you wear those glasses? And I would go, so I can see. And the whole crowd would go, yeah. And the kid that didn't wear glasses, he would run out and say, I got to get some glasses like DMC. You know what I'm saying? Not to be, be like me, but he saw power in it. Like, I saw power in Tony Stark. I can relate to Peter Parker. Here's, what's, here's what can kind of give people a real example of what I'm talking about. I'm loving Marvel comic books. I'm loving Spider-Man, Captain, and all of that. But something really happened when, okay, I can relate to Peter Parker because he's smart and he's Spider-Man. But then something really happened to me when I found out, where does Peter Parker live? Stanley said he lives in Queens. I remember reading that, and I just, oh, oh my God, I live in Queens, I live in Queens. So when I was doing my records, I wasn't saying I live in Queens to big up my community. People thought I was repping Queens. No, when I was writing my first rhymes, I wrote that I was in Queens because Peter Parker lived in Queens. <laughs> so, so now people are going back to my music after they understand DMC loves comic books. They see all the Easter eggs that's there. I shouted out that I'm from Queens because I got somebody I could relate to. Remember, when we first came out, it was Bronx in Manhattan was the epicenter of hip-hop. So even when we came out, the real pioneers, Grandmaster Flash, Cold Crush 4, Treacherous 3, Africa Bambada, and the Zulu Nation, all Curtis Blow, all the original pioneer rappers hated me and run because we were from Queens. Like, they was like, these kids, they're not even from, they're not from Bronx and Manhattan. So what's all this attitude? We was from a lower suburban middle class neighborhood. They thought we were fakes. And for, they're not from the hip hop came out of the Bronx to struggle. You know what I'm saying? Here we got parents. You know, I got both parents in my house. I go to school. My father drives an Electric 225, which was the rich man, the poor man's Cadillac. Remember the Buick Electric 225? If you if your parents couldn't afford the Fleetwood and the Sedanville, if you can't get a Caddy, you can get the Buick Electric 225. They made it so that you could feel like you had a Cadillac. So those early rappers. Their concept of us was, first of all, they're from the suburbs. You know what I'm saying? They don't live in the projects. They don't live in the Bronx. And they're soft. They didn't understand everything that they had in their city we had in our neighborhood. But we took it upon ourselves to say, even in the dirt poor ghetto, there's fun and greatness and goodness, and it could be just as hard. So when we first came out, those guys really hated us. But my thing was to put the power of self so that that kid in the Bronx could realize, all right, if Daryl McDaniels is connected to Peter Parker, Tony Starks, and Bruce Wayne in a good way, 
that maybe if I act like that, there's some kid somewhere, I gotta be that next connection. So in the beginning, I was just pretending to be this super powered individual because of what I was imagining myself to be. For instance, Crash through wall on King of Rock, 1985. Crash through walls, come through floors, bust through ceilings, then knock down doors. Rappers didn't do that. Superheroes did that. Crash through walls, come through for bust through. But I spoke that, and what happened with my music? If I would have never said that, it would probably been another five or six years before rap would have got on MTV, before rap would have got full-time on it. We was the first to do everything. You know what I'm saying? that the industry did. Like, there was no way they was going to let hip-hop be a form of serious entertainment. Why? Because you got Queen, you got the Beatles, and you got Marvin Gaye. You guys ain't with this. That thing that you're doing is fake, phony, it ain't going to let us a fad. But I could have just came and said, I'm the best rapper ever. Well, wow, they don't even, nobody got faith in rap. But instead of calling myself the king of rap, I had enough balls. I was just playing, though. I wasn't serious. I didn't. I want Mick Jagger. <laughs> I want Mick Jagger, Steven Tyler, and Bar Jovi and Tina Turner to like me. So I'm just playing. I, I didn't know it was going to work. I came and said, I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. At that time, a lot of the urban radio stations and the urban journalists and urban critics, they hated Run DMC. Because it was like, okay, where are you going to be in three years? It's rapper fad. Will this be it? They thought we was going to go out like the hula hoop. But the white rock audience loved Run DMC for saying the king of rock because even the rock stars, it was like, Lenny was like, these guys got the balls to say they're the kings of rock with this new form of music that might not even exist. They saw themselves in us. The biggest rock stars on the earth saw themselves. Lou Reed said, I want them to open for me. And actually called us to come open for him in 1984. And we said, no, because we didn't want to mess up Lou Reed. said, no, we were just playing. Mr. Reed said, no, y'all coming to play perform for me. So imagine that I'm pretending. My music, who I am, crashes through wall. Y'all guys just rap and rhyme. Y'all say rhymes. Rappers delight the rapping too. No, me, not my rap. I crash through walls, come through floors, bust through ceilings, and knock down doors. And when we're on the tape, we're first out the block. We can hear our sounds. For, and all of that started to happen. You know what I'm saying? So people go back now and see the Easter eggs. Oh, wow, DMC was talking about what superheroes do. Even on King of Rock, like I said, Run said, I'm DJ Run. Run used to be the DJ for Curtis Blow at 12 years old. So Run was already in the business. On King of Rock, Run said, I'm DJ Run, I could scratch. I didn't say, I'm DMC, I could rap. He said, I'm DJ Run, I could scratch. I was supposed to, I'm DMC, I could rap. No. He looked at me, he did a double take on me. He said, I'm DJ Run, I could scratch. I said, I'm DMC, I could draw. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to me when he said, D, when I say that, you say so. So it was supposed to be, I'm DJ Run, I could scratch. I'm DMC, I could rap. No. Who I am, I'm rapping. I don't care about rapping. I'm just rapping because it's fun. Or who I am, I'm DMC, I could draw. So now everybody's going back. Yo, D, been in the comic books. Yeah, before music was a comic book. So what I'm trying to say is the pretending make-believe that I was projection was actually my reality. Yeah, and I feel like what the people who very much understood rock knew was that if it's not about 
breaking through. If it's not right. about crashing, then it's not rock anymore. Right. Then it's just easy right. listening music. Right. Yep, exactly. And they knew that we had the attitude because everything's connected, but you have to not be ashamed to present it. You know what I'm saying? A lot of kids won't speak up around other kids because they think what they're doing is weak and corny. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of, you know, a lot of people in hip-hop over the ages has fronted that they were thugs and gangbangers. No, they were like kids. Man, I know Harold. Harold went to preschool with me like that. But the people around them did that, so they took on that. But what does that do? Once you start saying that, that element comes towards you. You know what I'm saying? Once you say, look, for instance, Tupac, he was great. He was brilliant. Poet, revolutionary actor, very philosophical. Like when you see Tupac when he's not in trouble, brilliant. Young, that's the beauty. That's the thing that could have kept him alive. But what was the thing that killed him? I'm going to die in a hill of bullets. I say this to kids. I say, Tupac was great, right? What happened to him? He got shot. But why did he get shot? I'm going to die in a hill of bullets. No, don't say that, Tupac. My rhymes is, I'm going to be in a field with puppies and ducklings having ice cream and lollipops. That's gangster to me. You know what I'm saying? Biggie, for instance, Biggie was brilliant. I asked the kids, what did he take a picture next to on his album cover? A hearse, Mr. DMC. They call me Mr. DMC because I'm 50 now. A hearse, Mr. DMC. What happened to him? He got the ride in that. I said, me? I would have had a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> I would have had a Volkswagen Beetle with kittens and little, the little chickadees, the little chicklets. And that, that's all mine. And I'm going to be like this because I'm, I'm talking about life. Easy E. Sex, sex, sex. Girls, girls, girls. What happened to him, young boys and girls? He died of AIDS. Ah. So everything Run DMC represented, you know, like I paired with me and my Adidas. I didn't call, I tell kids, I didn't call Adidas. Adidas called me because of the image and concept. We didn't do it for a sneaker deal. I like Adidas. I'm going to make a song about it. So that's what's important in all of this. You know what I'm saying? And the rock dudes, like you say, they saw what we were saying and how we were carrying ourselves. When hip hop was able to go on MTV, MTV was very influential on the success of hip hop. Because MTV put us in every living room nationwide. Prior to MTV, hip-hop was just on the radio Friday and Saturday night. So MTV took it upon themselves with a little push from the white rock band artists like David Bowie. David Bowie was in the middle of an interview about him, and he just looked at the DJ guy and said, why you don't have more black people on there? And again, there's an infamous interview, and a guy could say nothing. In MTV, are we going to be diversity and stuff like that? So the rock guys saw themselves and us. Why? Here's another reason. It's all connected. Before we was able to go in the studio and record, what did we use? We used records that was already made. We used James Brown records because James Brown always had a place in his records where the funky drummer beat would play. I can say my rap. Somebody's trash is another man's treasure. Remember how you huge disco used to be? Disco was the hugest thing on the face of the earth. People thought hip-hop was going to go out like disco. Only reason hip-hop didn't go out like disco because we had a rock attitude. We had a we-don't-give-a-F attitude. But remember, disco was so big that even the biggest rock bands on the earth had to make disco records. This is a historical. 
the Rolling Stones made miss you to get in the disco because they needed a way to get in the Studio 54. Because that's where you, their management was like, you got to get in there. That shows that you make it. They were busy making what they made. So they made miss you a disco record to get, a disco rock record to get in. Queen, Freddie Mercury, was like, and as flamboyant as he was, he was like, ah, Studio 54 is my kingdom. Queen, we getting in this. So they made don't, don't, don't. Another one bites the dust. The Four Tops. See, people could, the Barquets, all the fun groups, everybody, Donna Summer. His was Killer, one of the greatest pop groups in existence who ran the disco, the Bee Gees. So everybody was making disco. They wanted to get in disco. Once people got tired of disco, they threw it out. Hip-hop came and scooped it up. Why? Because there was a lot of beats. We could rhyme over those bass lines. But people tend to forget prior to the beginning of recorded rap, we used James Brown funky drummer records. We used disco. We used whatever R&B record was number one on the radio in the 70s. The rapper would just take the hot disco R&B or James Brown song, or Slide of Family song, take their music and make it over. But in the same crates of those early DJs of the 70s were rock break beats. One of the most infamous was a song that I didn't know the name of it, but it was on an Aerosmith album, Toys in the Attic. I never knew it was Walk This Way because I never heard the lyrics, but I just knew to tell the DJ, get number four out. And play that one so I could rhyme over it. So when Run DMC started putting an element of rock in our music, they thought we sat down as black hip hop kids trying to create something. No, it was already part of us. And another reason why is, you know this, in the 70s, radio stations wasn't segregated. In the 70s, for instance, 77 WABC, I believe the DJ was Dan Ingram, Dan Ingram, rest in peace. His station played Led Zeppelin, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, The Jackson Five, Sly and the Family Stone, Credence Clearwater Revival, Harry Chapin. Remember the folk rock, um, um, Harry Chapin, Leroy Brown, bad, bad, Leroy Brown, baddest man, and the whole, all of those John Denver. You can literally turn the radio station on in the 70s and hear a John Denver song followed up by a Joan Jett record. You know what I'm saying? And that's how radio was. So we didn't have access to studios. So a lot of the music we used was rock beats, funk beats, soul beats. But another thing that we did was we didn't just take the music without studying who made it. We would read. See, it was different back then with music because you had an album cover. The albums were like comic books. So as little kids, DJs, doing, we, we're not creating a new genre. We're just creating art and having fun. So if I'm going to play the record, if I got 10, 15 minutes, after I play the record, I'm going to take that album cover up and I'm going to read it. And remember how fun it used to be to read album covers? So then you would learn who John Cougar, remember he was John Cougar Mellencamp. So you would learn who he is. You would learn who John Fogarty is. You know what I'm saying? You would learn Led Zeppelin, like Jay-Z got a jet. Led Zeppelin didn't have one. Remember when Led Zeppelin had a jet and your mind was just blown because it was like, these guys are just making music. But you, you would also learn about who they were. So when it was time for us to do our presentation, we knew that 
even though we, we want to be rich and famous rock stars, there's still a responsibility to talk about the social and personal issues. That's what made them good. So the rock stars related with us more than our urban audience when we started showing diversity because we was getting it from them anyway. I mean, let's take that concept and think about what's happening now because, right. you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with how the history of hip-hop, the history of comic book culture influenced social change. Oh, and, big time. And, and maybe saying right now, look, we don't, we don't have time for those things. There's things that are happening right now in front of us. So maybe we could talk with people about how both of those cultures right. have spawned social change. I think we are where we are right now because we don't utilize the cultures. You know what I'm saying? We, we depend... Or we depend so much on reporting now instead of saying, okay, this is happening now. How do we get around it? What can we do around it? All those examples are right around us in front of our faces. For instance, the majority of all the comic books were about race relations and bigotry and bias and prejudice and social and political issues. The X-Men was created to show about racism and hate. The humans hate in the X-Men because they're not like them. It's it's known fact all throughout history, especially in the 60s during the civil rights movement, DC and Marvel would address what the media couldn't do on a weeknight basis, the comic books would do on a daily basis continually. There were thousands of issues of comic books where Stan Lee did a Spider-Man issue dealing with drug abuse, where a kid dies and the Spider-Man goes out there, a Superman Well, yeah, Superman issue dealt with racism in the 60s because it's hard to talk about racism one-on-one. People don't want to, black people really don't want to talk about it because they're going to seem angry and the white people don't really want to talk about it because they feel like they're going to lose some, but it's not about losing any, it's going to be lost. It's about realizing that we all won. Superman, I forgot what issue was this, they did an issue where Lois Lane, as an investigative reporter, went into a machine that turned her into a black lady so she could go into the ghetto and see how the black people live. Now, that's a really far out way to do it. Why couldn't she just go as a white Lois Lane into there? What that was saying was those black people wouldn't let white Lois Lane in here. Get out of here because you ain't us. So it exists on both sides. So they had to do it in a way to make people... It had to be presented in a spectacular, mind-blowing way to make people realize the core essence of it. Captain America, one of my favorite superheroes ever because I loved his stories. He was a guy who was frozen. And he came out of a world of social unrest, political unrest. Was, we came out of World War II. You know what I'm saying? The, the Nazis was killing the Jews. So it was like he could relate to that. But he woke up here years later and the shit got worse (laughs) and things were bad but he still held to the core thing that was his when he was frozen which really made him an outcast don't be bringing this shit now shit is different mr steve rogers but i fell in love because of the character struggles which was portrayed in captain america historically politically and socially and i fell in love with steve rogers this is a true story i almost stabbed my brother because he teased me he said yo d And and this is how race affects us all. My brother said, D, you'll never be like Captain America because you can never be white and have blonde hair. And I remember when he told me that, my mother had to 
hold me from running to the kitchen and getting the butcher knife because it hurt me. What do you mean I can't be like Steve Rogers? But then again, look how creative these vessels were when Captain America teamed up with the Falcon. Stanley put Captain America's sidekick as this black dude from Harlem, which was brilliant. You know what I'm saying? Stanley put Daredevil in Elle's kitchen. And what was good about Daredevil, he was a blind human. He didn't have superpowers. The only superpowers is excellent sensory perception. But he was a blind human taking a stand and kick the King Canal and all of that. So comic books, TV shows, they would all teach us about humanity. You know, at the core level, they always teach you about humanity. At the end of the Brady Bunch, there was always a lesson to learn. We will not learn how to solve the problem in the blink of an eye. Like Jesus said, all problems that we have can be solved in the blink of an eye if we come together. So it's culture and art that succeeds where politics and religion fails. The reason why politics and religion fails is because even with politics, if I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican, we got a beef. I mean, we could be the best of friends, but just for saying you're something different than me, it's always going to be a beef. No, you could be a Republican, I could be a Democrat, but we're coming in politically as humans. So we forget that. With religion, if you say you're Muslim and I say I'm Christian, we got to be. But let me tell you, it's all the same God. But as long as you... Now, even within our established entities, even within every political, social establishment, there's division. Let's say a Muslim, Christian, we got to be. But the Christians be for themselves all day because it bugs me out. You got born-again Christian. You got Lutheran, you got Episcopalian, you got cat. You know what I'm saying? And then look at politics. I could be a Republican and you're a Republican, but then you're a liberal, you're a conservative. It's always the vision, the arts, the arts. You know what you're doing. This is the way we solve the problem. We don't solve the problem by first fighting to say who's right and then sitting down waiting for a damn law that people got to vote on that some of the people that's voting on it might like it, not like the law just because I'm a Republican and a Democrat wrote it. So we kind of eradicate all of that. It's all about sitting down, no walls up, no devices. Okay, what's the problem? How do we fix this? Comic books always showed us how to solve problems. Plays always show them books. TV shows, Bruce Lee Kung Fu movies, books written by people. I'm not talking about political or religious books. I'm talking about people who write books from a human standpoint. That's the thing that solves the problem. Ever since this world was in existence, problems get resolved in the blink of an eye like Jesus or Mohammed the prophet would say, when humans come together. Malcolm X got a wake-up call when he took his pilgrimage to Mecca and saw white Muslims, made him come back to America on a whole new shit. The white man isn't the enemy. It's the concepts of that establishment. So that's how we eradicate everything. And that's what we did with our music. To show you how powerful it is, and this is probably scary to the guys that want to run everything, but once you find out what they're doing, we can even remove them. The first thing that an evil dictator does, or a tyrant, or evil rule, I want to rule the world. The first thing they do before they bring in the army to kick our asses and shoot us, before they attack us physically, 
What do they, before negative evil force attacks people physically, I'm talking about bombs, killing, shooting, property, this and that. The first thing they do is send the troops in, go to the museums, destroy all the art and the paintings. Bring me every writer, artist, sculptor. They destroy the art. Burn all the books. Take all those stats. You saw with ISIS. ISIS was going into the cities. Remember when they was on their early run and they would tape them pulling down? They destroy the arts. The arts is our true communications. I'm not talking about our news programs. News programs just show what's on. If I show something on my news program and I was the first to get there, I'm going to get more viewers. The arts show that, oh, this is nothing new. That happened in 1860. Once we realize that, that's when change come about. So when Melly Mel, when Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five made the message, it's effed up everywhere. The Watts, the, look, the ghetto in South Carolina related to the message. Because their ghetto's smaller, but it's the same thing. They got the same problem. So what do we do? Right after the message came out, and all these other message records came out. It was a million message records. So it got monotonous and boredom. Remember I said out of boredom comes evolution and elevation. So after you had a million message stories, we realized that it's not only death and destruction. It's nice. So Africa Bambada made a record called Planet Rock, saying this is the message, but we know a place where everybody could be eating, we ain't got a gangbang no more. That's what it, Grandmaster Ferris of Five said is effed up. And then Africa Bambada in, in a soul sign of force said, but it could be better. We don't have to fight each other. We could be leaders and we could be authors and stuff like that. And that, that was the thing that has to be done. So now everybody's looking for a solution. If you realize, I don't care if it was the Jewish people being persecuted, if it's the black people being persecuted over in Asia, if it was the Mongols coming in and killing all those people over there, if it was the Indians being persecuted, it was always something artistic that stopped everything. It was always something artistic that stopped, an example of something. It, it, it had to be an emotional experience by one or a bunch of people. So in Malcolm X's case, he was by any means necessary. That's a physical response. So him and Martin Luther King was divided. Martin Luther King was using the mental. But you all got to have the spiritual backed up. But when Malcolm X went to Mecca and saw a white Muslim, he realized, mm, let me rethink my game plan. I need to add something to my presentation. And that's the thing that brought people together. Ain't no white Muslims was coming into New York until Malcolm X saw it. So we need the comic books can do what uh, political leaders and our religious leaders can't. Because I don't care how powerful their message is. If you're looking at this and you say he's a Pentecostal pastor from Clearwater, Florida, he's no longer a human being to me. He's the Pentecostal pastor. And somewhere in the back of my mind, my mother don't like Pentecostal preachers. So those are the things. But if he comes up, I'm just a man of God. But it's always an artistic presentation to our acceptance into being considered a legitimate form of music had to come through an artistic expression. Being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that people don't want hip-hop in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and this is very good too, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, when it started out, was about rock bands. So the people that have a beef, they stay in with that one original thought. But the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame should have really just been the Music Hall of Fame because you got all these other forms of music. You know what I'm saying? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is not the White Rock Hall of Fame. It's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So if a black guy's playing the rock guitar, he can get in more than a soul guy? You mean James Brown? Isn't a bro- So it's the labeling of it. So I remember when we got inducted, I went and asked the guys at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and this, this probably could solve a lot of our racial stuff, too, our social racial issues. I went and asked. I said, um, I know you're familiar with Gene Simmons' opinion. And he, I love Gene Simmons. He's very opinionated. I love him. He's great with kids and stuff like that. But Gene Simmons said hip-hop should not be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was about rock musicians. And they don't play musicians. They don't play instruments, right? So when he said that, I remember um, it was about maybe seven years ago. At least it was six or seven years ago. So me understanding that I'm not labeling and dividing. I'm understanding what Gene and Sin say. So me as being the king of rock, I go, the almighty king of rock goes, I agree with what he's saying. I should have never did that because I got cursed out. It was F.G. Simmons. People are so mean, this and that. But I said, no, you got to understand what he's saying. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was for rock bands. If they was going to make the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because of the greatness of Disco and the Bee Gees and James Brown, they should have had annexes. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame soul music annex. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame pop music annex. But then the guys told me, yo, D, but that's the headache. We should have just been the Music Hall of Fame, but the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, rock and roll isn't just a race or a social class of people. And they explained it to me like this. The head guy at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame said DMC. If Michael, he said, say I'm the guy and you're me. He says, Michael, if you play a flute, now he didn't say if you play a flute in a band with, but I said, just the flute, he said, just the flute. If you just play a flute and you could go into Madison Square Garden for two hours just playing a flute and sell that shit out, that's rock and roll. So I was like, now I understand. <laughs> so that gets rid of any. Thoughts of this class, this person, it's who you are. So we all are human. And I think it's the arts. Like, people ain't going to understand the struggle that's going on politically, socially, conceptually, spiritually between races until they read the X-Men. The X-Men, Stanley created that to adjust to address the racial issues. So now all of those kids, black, white, Puerto Rican, Asian, for the last have Marvel been around 100 years, we understand what's going on right now these days and times. <laughs> I'm coming out of this. I'm charged. I want to make some art. You know, what would yeah. you say to people who are out there right now who uh-huh. are thinking to themselves, God, I'm listening to this. I'm, I'm pumped up. I'm charged. But right. maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe it's not going to be important enough. And, you know, what would you say to them to get them to start getting a part of those cultures? Larry Hammers told me this. He said, in any culture or industry, you have to start with the thought. (laughs) You have to start with the thought. And that means 
You have to stop being selfish. People need to realize you don't have to do it all for it to work. If you got an idea, there's a young boy and girl somewhere. I can't draw. She's like, I can't draw, but I see this happening. Go out there and empower an artist. There's an artist sitting somewhere waiting to jump into this opportunity. Once you do that, okay, I got this idea. I need this. All of us, we know our friend that can draw. You go to, before it's even worth money, the process of you imagining the image, you get them to draw it. Now you got something to sell. Y'all can split the money. But then now you just got the, the thought. Then the thought becomes the image. Then it becomes something physical, something touchable. Now, oh, wow. Now, think of your story. If you're not a writer, go get somebody to write it for you. And what this signifies is this. If we all start working together and coming together, the perfect world, free of wars, free of bias and bigotry and hatred and discrimination can come exist. But how? We got to work together. The problem is the image in that person's head is different from mine because they're thinking about what they want. What do we want? Everybody wants goodness. Goodness is only achieved if we all do good things to achieve it. Good, fair, just truthful things to achieve it. So for anybody, one of the things that came out of the, um, me being quarantined was this DMC thing, I could run with it forever. D's for doing it all of the time. M's for the rhymes. That on mine. C's for cool, cool ass can be. Wearing my glasses so I can see. DMC means devastating mic controller. Doing mine's cool. Let's rewind about three years ago. I do a lot of work with kids. I do a lot of work with foster kids and adopted kids. Because I was 35 years old when I found out that I was adopted and I found out I was a foster kid. And then right there, I was like, oh, wow, I'm connected to them. You know, but I had to grow up first to find out that information so I could have this. The King of Rock was the setup for what I was really here to do and represent with it. Go back and empower these little kids. So I'm always around kids. I'm always around events with craft tables and food tables, whether it's the Grammys, a video set, a luncheon or um, a studio thing. So a couple of months ago, I was doing an interview and they said, DMC. Is there anything else that you would do? But you're doing music, you're doing comic books. Is there anything else that you would like to do? And I said, you know what? I'm going to start a cookie company because I'm always around kids' cookies. I'm always around cookies, and I love oatmeal cookies. And I remember I was in a room with about 11 people, and there was a couple of kids in there, a couple of parents. And the people said, if you start a cookie company, I'll buy it. And then I was like, wow, I started thinking. And I left out and didn't think about it. So over this quarantine, DMC, DMC, DOD, you should do the cookies. Try, you know, coming out of this, you know, and especially now because the way the live performance thing is, I'm realizing, damn, if I don't perform, there's no income. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like I don't have 50 jets in view. I don't have monthly expenses that's out of here. So, you know, it's like, yeah, I need to do something else just so I can have income, start a new business. So, DMC, DMC, DMC. But I'm trying to tell people, to, also with your question, if anybody wants to do something, you already have everything necessary to succeed within you. It starts with the thought. So DMC, I had two meetings about it so far. I'm starting a cookie company. It's going to be the DMC, the DMC logo with the bars. 
but it's going to be called, like Daryl Makes Comics, it's going to be called Daryl Makes Cookies. <laughs> so I'm getting ready to start a cookie company. <laughs> and that starts with a creative thought. Now, then again, like you said, I'm going to start a cookie company. I'm the Mighty DMC. I don't think I'm going to bake the cookies because I might burn them. I can't even scramble eggs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this. There's a baker friend I know. I'm going to go, yo, I'm Sonic. You be the baker. I'm going to go, Eric, my guy Eric's going to be the manager. And I have my trees got so I'm starting a cookie company. But then again, I can't do it by myself. I have to do it together. So I'm going to find the baker. I'm going to go find um, a facility, but the vendor. So I can do that, and I'm going to create a cookie company, but it's not about me. It's about all of us getting what we want. And that's what I think it's about. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, every time we speak, it's just fantastic. It's inspiring. Thank you, man, so much for coming on. I appreciate Thank you for it. having me. And yeah. I, love, I love the humanity thing that you just sent me to read. Oh, cool. So there you have it. The mighty DMC, Daryl McDaniels, talking about the importance of comic book and hip-hop cultures. These are worlds that can open our minds, open our hearts, and unlock our potential. Just being able to imagine a different world, even if it's a fantasy world, can help us start asking questions and pursuing paths in our own life that can lead to change. Look, not everyone is going to get into comic books and become a rock and roll Hall of Fame artist like Daryl McDaniels, but we don't have to be. Maybe we just get really into comic books and it's entertaining and takes us to a different place for a bit. Maybe we get super into it and collect vintage comics and meet people along the way who share our interests. Or maybe we get motivated to take on a creative pursuit of our own and see where it goes. But the important thing is that we put our imagination, our creativity, and our inspiration in motion, whatever the topic. So get at it, hardcore humans. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Hardcore Humanism podcast on your favorite app. Give us a rating and write a review. If you want to take the next step and make changes in your own life, check out the Hardcore Humanism coaching and therapy program at hardcorehumanism.com. See you next time.